Welcome to Premier Pain Talk, a podcast dedicated to expanding awareness about treatment options for people in pain. Each week, host Dr. Michael Danko from Premier Pain Treatment Institute in Cincinnati, Ohio, will discuss cutting-edge treatments for pain management that are improving the quality of life for those suffering from chronic pain. Tune in now to learn more about how to relieve pain and restore your life. Hello and welcome to our uh, episode of Premier Pain Talk. Um, your host, Dr. Michael Danko. With me today is uh, my good friend, Dr. Chris Buer from St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, I've known Chris for quite a while now, and, and uh, he's a really great physician that does a lot of uh, intrathecal pump therapy uh, along with myself. Uh, and uh, we're going to talk to you today a bit about our journey with pump therapy. Uh, welcome, Dr. Buer. Thanks, Mike. Glad to be here. So, uh, yeah, we'll kick things off a little bit. Tell me a, a bit about uh, about your practice in St. Louis and, and where you where you trained and kind of what got you to your, your current job position. Yeah, you bet. So, I'm uh, originally from St. Louis. I always knew I wanted to uh, to be here with family close. Uh, so, I did undergrad, med school, residency, all in uh, all in Missouri, and then I ventured to Indianapolis for my fellowship, uh, which is where. Um, you know, I first found out about pumps in general, and uh, but I'm, I'm honestly I'm really fortunate and thankful that I fell into this great field of pain management. I didn't really know what it was, uh, even in residency. I was I did an anesthesia residency, like a lot of pain doctors, and uh, had no idea what pain management was, that it was even a specialty. Um, and so I rotated, and I saw saw what it could be, and and that it's not just handing out pills. It's really being able to make a difference in people's lives. And uh, so I, I made a late switch to do extra training and fellowship in Indianapolis and uh, ended up at a great program there where, where I learned a ton um, and, and got good exposure to, to pain pumps there. So that was eight years ago now and the time goes really fast and uh, so much has happened in our specialty even since then that's been um, great for us, giving more options to patients to uh, to improve both their pain and, and mobility and quality of life overall. Yeah, I love that you mentioned uh, you know the fact that you were fortunate to 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 find out about our specialty and what we do, and and then that's a really a big part of what I want to do with these podcasts as as we go along is really try to improve awareness about what we do um, because whether it's uh, some of the things in in uh, in the uh, in the entertainment world with shows like dope sick or, or some, uh, some of the books that are out there or, or audio books, you know, I think there's a kind of a, a current perce- there's a perception of what pain management is. And, and, uh, and I think a lot of people, whether it's patients or whether it's referring providers really have no clue what pain management really is. Uh, and especially when it comes to, you know, one of our favorite therapies in pump therapy. Uh, and so, now, with with pump therapy, for those of you who are unfamiliar with it, this is a, a an infusion of of medication into the the spinal canal, uh, and it's used to treat uh, chronic pain conditions, also as cancer pain conditions. And, and uh, uh, you know, there there is this therapy is around for a long time. It's not a new therapy, and and uh, we found out how to do this therapy quite well. I've had a lot of satisfied patients, you know, both in Cincinnati and St. Louis. Um, tell me a little bit about how you uh, came about with pump therapy and, and uh, kind of what your experience has been with bringing it on board of your practice. Yeah, uh, so in my fellowship, uh, it was a very uh, interventional practice. They did lots of procedures, including the most advanced things, so things like spinal cord stimulators and pain pumps. And These pain pumps sometimes come with a reputation of um, 
being difficult to manage or work with and have this history. And I think like you pointed out, so much has changed over the years to the point where if I could only pick one therapy ever, I'd always pick a pump. I think it's the absolute best thing we have, which isn't to say that all my patients get pumps. It makes up a, a relatively small percentage of our practice. But I'm so thankful it's there because it's a lifeline for patients that maybe don't get relief with some of those other options. Uh, so I, I finished fellowship, had a lot of experience, still wasn't sure if I felt comfortable doing pumps. And fortunately, I had a few people talk me into how um, how easy it is to really get that going and how important it is for patients. And so we're up to um, about 400 pump patients in our practice uh, at this point, eight years later. And it's been uh, incredibly rewarding to, to help that group of patients that a lot of them, you know, were told there were no other options and there's nothing else that could help them. Uh, and understandably, they, you know, they, they believed that or uh, maybe tried some other things, again, last-ditch efforts that didn't help and um, ultimately found out about a pump or ended up at our office just by happenstance. And, um, and we were able to offer them um, a therapy that is really minimally invasive and, and relatively quick and easy without significant risk and side effect. Yeah, and then for those who are unfamiliar, this is a, a, a minor, you know, surgical implant that we do for chronic pain. And I've found uh, often that that whether uh, in the chronic pain world, especially the kind of earlier you can offer this therapy, the better the, the people tend to do. Uh, and uh, that doesn't mean that this is the first thing we jump to, but at the same time, we don't want to just wait and continue to try everything else and use it as a as a salvage therapy. Yeah, uh, cancer pain being something where we're typically it's a little bit different subset where you know where you may want to. You know, the scenario is different, but in the in the chronic pain world, where where we have where people deal with these conditions for a lot longer, um, at what point do do you think about in, implementing pump therapy or, or offering it to your patient, or, or what kind of conditions are you are are you seeing where you're like, yeah, this is a, this situation where, where this condition is probably appropriate for uh, talking about a pump with the patient? Well, we know that a lot of patients have already tried the therapy and the injections and the medications and so forth, and Maybe they were promised that the last surgery or stimulator, whatever it is, would be kind of the thing for them. Um, so I don't position pumps for my patients as the absolute last resort because I know there's um, certainly groups of patients where we know the pump is going to be their most successful option and uh, a long-lasting option for them. Uh, so, you know, a lot of conditions, most of the uh, spine pain conditions, neuropathy conditions, chronic abdominal pain, uh, as you mentioned, cancer pain, all of those patients uh, are, are potentially very good candidates for a pump. And I think once you've failed the, the simple things, uh, pump becomes a reasonable option uh, for all of those types of uh, patients. And then when you, when you think that they're a candidate, uh, what's the, if, you're, if, you're, if you're talking to your patient, what do you explain to them? Like kind of what are the steps? How do you determine if, uh, if the pump's going to be the right therapy for them? Well, we're really fortunate with both spinal cord stimulators and pain pumps. They're really the only surgeries in the world you get to sample before you have it done. Um, and again, we'll use the term surgery lightly because I always like to say that no bone gets cut, no muscle gets cut. It's a very superficial kind of in-and-out procedure. But we do recognize it's still an incision. Um, but, but the ability to test it really is the best part. And so we'll encourage patients to consider this test. Uh, and the test is pretty simple. It's a single injection of pain medication that we would plan to use in the pump. Uh, and we put that medication into the spinal fluid. And uh, Patients always wonder, well, how does the 
the Percocet or, or the Elite or whatever, how does it know where to go? How does it know where to go to my back or if I sprain my ankle, etc.? Uh, and that medicine doesn't know where to go. So it's a really simple concept with the pump. We're just taking a really small amount of medicine and putting it where it needs to go. And uh, so that's what we do with the test. It takes about a minute or so to do. Patients are able to go home afterwards and it lasts for about a day. So they have a day to, uh, to test it out and see, is this worth it to me to go ahead and put the pump in? And so that ability to test it really is a nice feature both for us and for patients to to kind of prove that, hey, this is going to be a great option to move ahead with. Yeah, and, and also a great option that's going to be able to manage your pain without needing to, to take your pain medication anymore. Uh, and I think that that's an important topic to, to at least touch on. Uh, you know, this is not a situation where we're penalizing someone by taking away their medication. You know, I think we're just finding a, a much better way to manage their pain than the, than the medicine has been doing. Uh, so, do you, any comments or any thoughts on on kind of that transition from uh, you know the the regular schedule of taking medication multiple times a day to to you know just letting the pump manage it? Well, uh, you make a great point there, and opioids are great medicines for for short periods of time. You know, you have surgery, you have a, a uh, an injury or uh, something short term, and they work great. But the real problem with opioids, of course, we see all the things on the news addiction and overdose and all the, the side effects and so forth. But the problem with opioids from a pain standpoint is they just don't provide lasting relief. Eventually you, you get tolerant to them and they just lose their effectiveness. Um, so that's really a side benefit. I mean, the number one benefit of a pump is better pain control, activity level, and quality of life. But being able to get rid of those side effects and the tolerance and the other issues that go along with um, with oral or, or skin patch based opioids uh, is is definitely a great side benefit also yeah and also you know i I think getting rid of your monthly visit to the pharmacist is is a nice little side perk too Uh, so can can we talk a little bit about uh kind of life with a pump like how how often they come into the office afterwards the the pump holds medicine for how long you know the kind of the uh what they might expect on day-to-day basis well, one of the, the questions I usually get is, well, what, what can I do with this thing? What, you know, what can't I do? Uh, and there seems to be a concern that you're going to be limited. And we tell our patients that you can essentially name anything in the world that you want to do with a pump and you can do it. Um, so for some patients, that may be trying to stay out of a nursing home and, and live independently. And um, I have a younger patient who runs marathons with a pump. So the pump itself doesn't really result in... Um, in limitations per se. The life with a pump should be pretty simple. I mean, we, we hope that the patients really don't even recognize that it's there and they're able to go about their life and, um, and, and live without this attachment to, to pain and seeing doctors and so forth. We do have to refill the pump with medicine though. Uh, so that's something that's done generally about every three months, give or take a little bit, uh, with a pretty simple process um, where typically a, a nurse or um, a nurse practitioner or physician will just access part of the pump where we can inject new medicine into the pump and uh, it takes a couple of minutes to do and then you're on your way uh, and then we see about three months later to check back in and fill the pump up. Well, and we're, we're really trying to, you know, target our podcast and, and our conversation to, to our patients um, and, and, you know, our referring providers really who may not be, you know, too aware of the therapy. But 
so, so I, you know, without going too technical and too deep in the weeds on on clinical research, you know, I think I'd be remiss to not 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 bring up that that both of us have been involved in clinical research on on pump therapy, and and we're trying to you know we have different um, projects we're working on, but uh, but at the same time, there is already good data out on pump therapy. So maybe in uh, at a basic level, can maybe talk a little bit through some of the studies that Dr. Greider and Dr. Holmes have done that kind of establish how long this uh, kind of longevity and, and uh, you know three year data on pump therapy because I, I found that um, when I when I look at uh, you know a lot of the data out there, a lot of the things we deal with in pain management is you know twelve month studies or, or less, uh, and also a lot of times patients want to know what to expect, and I think a, you know three-year data sets are a really great way to explain to the patient, you know, how long, uh, you know, reasonably what their therapy uh, durability is going to look like. I've, I've stole half your thunder there, so you can maybe finish the second half of it. <laughs> hey, no, that's all right. I think uh, I'm going to date us now, but um, we were in med school in pretty much the early uh, to mid-2000s, which is a long time ago, and I think right around that time there was a shift in thinking, right, from well, this is the way we do things in medicine because this is the way it is and this is how I learned, um, to something called evidence-based medicine, which is we want to know that we're doing things based on science uh, that supports what we're doing. So it gives real validation to why we're doing these things. Uh, and so, boy, what, nine, well, 10 years ago now, I guess, uh, we had uh, some really important data come out in the field of pain management with respect to these pumps that showed that if we are able to have patients off of opioids, we are able to keep them comfortable on very, very low doses for years. Uh, And Mike, as you said, a lot of these medical studies uh, only go out for a couple of months, and a couple of months of success is not really what we're looking for for our patients. We want this to be a a long-term, really lifelong therapy. Uh, And so several studies with hundreds of patients showed more than three years of relief uh, with, uh, with targeted drug delivery, with pain pumps, with no side effects, essentially improved quality of life, on, again, on very low doses. So we're fortunate to have that, and uh, we hope that uh, together things that you and I and other people in this field work on can continue to advance uh, the therapy to make it even better than it is now. We've done a great job, I think, talking through pump therapy for chronic pain, um, now, as far as cancer pain, uh, it, what would you describe, uh, what is the typical situation that you're seeing in, in St. Louis where you, your uh, patients come to you where, you where you think that uh, uh, an uh, intrathecal pump for pain is a good option for their cancer pain? Well, as, as always, one of the things that frustrates, I think, a lot of pain doctors is we want to help cancer patients a little bit earlier um, in the process. And when pain gets um, either uncontrolled, you can't you can't get it under good control with a reasonable amount of medication or really seen more commonly. Um, not only can you not get it under control, but the side effects of those medications just become overwhelming. Uh, you know, the patient's sleeping all day, severe constipation, and so forth. When those scenarios present themselves, uh, it's, a, it's really a great time to consider a pump. Uh, when, when unfortunately maybe the cancer has spread and um, maybe involves the, the abdomen or the bone, things that unfortunately result in significant pain. We know that pump therapy is likely to be the best option for pain control and also allowing those patients to, to be hopefully at home longer, to be more active still, to stay out of the hospital, 
Um, and as we have some data that shows really to, to be able to make more treatment sessions as well um, and continue the treatment for the actual cancer. And then I think for those patients that are that are you know fortunate to to go into remission, they they a lot of these people do deal with chronic pain conditions after cancer too. So you know they have an implant already in place that can help them you know long term as well. Yeah, that's a great point. And and I guess I should clarify: we talked earlier about the importance of being off of opioid medications with these pumps when it when it does become uh, the setting of cancer pain. It's a little bit different uh, the way most of us would manage things. Um, in that time of active cancer. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so it's, at that point, it's more of a, of a you know, additional therapy. Uh, you know, ideally, we're, we're able to reduce the burden of the oral medicine uh, and some of the side effects and things that may be limiting with that, but, but it's just a different scenario when you're talking chronic pain and cancer pain. Uh, and then quite a different scenario further, I guess the last topic I wanted to just briefly touch on is, is the fact that these, uh, these pumps are, are not, uh, not only for for pain issues, but they can also be for spasticity issues. So uh, maybe for kind of a little brief overview of intrathecal baclofen therapy for uh, through the pump. Yeah, it's, well, the pump itself, right, that's all it does is it pumps whatever you put in there uh, through a small tube. And uh, so what, what Mike's talking about is the use of a medicine called baclofen, which is a medicine for spasticity. Uh, so spasticity is something that, unfortunately, uh, you may see in patients with cerebral palsy or spinal cord injury or stroke. And it's really a debilitating um, effect of those conditions that can limit mobility and cause pain itself. And um, similarly, you know, patients typically will try some oral medications. They may try things like Botox injections. But when those things fail, when baclofen is given through a pump, uh, it is is profoundly uh, more beneficial. And I always I think very specifically of one patient who saw me early on in my career with multiple sclerosis, and she had spasticity, and she came in actually for another pain issue, um, but when we were talking, she, she had these spasticity issues, and she couldn't really raise her arm up hardly at all, and we did, uh, we did the trial, the test for the pump like we talked about earlier, and she came back the next day, and she raised her arm right over her head, um, and it's, it can really be a profound improvement again, with something that is um, a pretty pretty simple thing to do for us. Yeah, I think that's great. And, uh, and, and a lot of times in those scenarios, we will we'll also involve our, our rehab colleagues or our neurology colleagues as well, or, or they may be the ones who are, who are managing you know, those, those devices. Uh, you know, you mentioned that one of your patients with a pump uh, you know, is a marathon runner. Uh, and so now we're gonna, I'm going to selfishly transition to the, to the portion of the podcast where I'm going to get to, uh, you know, pick your brain a bit about stuff that I want to hear about. Cause uh, you know, I know a lot about pump therapy and I've learned a little bit from you today. Um, but I, I don't know nearly as much about your career as a, as a triathlete and, and, uh, and doing Ironman for those who, you know, who heard my, my intro podcast, I mentioned a little bit that I've gotten into triathlons and, and some of that. Uh, but I'm, I'm a neophyte compared to, uh, to, to Dr. Buer here. So, so Chris, tell me a bit about how you got into triathlon and, and how it all started for you. Well, now I feel the pressure of you creeping up on me, so it inspires my further training. Um, but yeah, so I, um, I happened to be, this was when I was in med school, I think, uh, and one day I was just watching TV with my brother, and the uh, Hawaii Ironman World Championship was on NBC, and I didn't really know what triathlon was per se, and I didn't know what the Ironman was, and I'm watching this thing, and 
Man, I really want to do that someday. That looks uh, incredible to be able to push yourself to uh, to limits that seem impossible. Um, and so I, something happened, and somebody at the gym was talking to me, and I had some friends there, and one of them did triathlons, so I started asking questions, and I was like, oh, I think, yeah, I think I might want to do one of those Ironmans. And, um, so the Ironman is kind of the long-distance triathlon. And then a couple people said, there's no way you can do that, because uh, I wanted to do one in six months. Well, you know how it is. When somebody tells you that you can't do something, sometimes it's motivating. And so I started training um, right then, and I signed up for it. And uh, that was kind of the start um, of, of doing it. So did you... Was your first one you signed up for a, a, a full distance Ironman, or, or did you do some uh, like shorter triathlons first, or did you just go right for the gusto? Um, I think I did technically at some kind of small indoor triathlon, and then I signed up for the Ironman, um, and then I did uh, some smaller ones before that. But I made plenty of uh, mistakes. I started my Ironman or my triathlon career racing in basketball shorts. Um, I love that. I didn't know that you were supposed to go fast in the transitions either. So I got my, like, um, my headphones in and my bandana on and whatnot and took my time. And, uh, so I didn't really know exactly what, uh, what I was doing, uh, but I, I read some books and went to the triathlon shop and talked to people. And, um, ultimately it's where I met a lot of my friends and, it became a social thing for me to go on these long bike rides and runs and whatnot and swim practice. We were all together and then we would travel together to some of these races. And uh, my first race, first Ironman was Ironman Florida. And I remember thinking, you know, I did the swim. So the swim's 2.4 miles and then the bike's 112 miles. And so by this point you've trained a lot and you're in incredible shape. And so I'm like 20 miles into the bike, and I'm thinking, boy, this is easy. Like, uh, I, I may have to do one of those double Ironmans, which is twice the distance. And then by mile 90 or so, I was like, this is horrible. Uh, I don't know if I can go any further. And so that's the range of emotions that tend to happen with, uh, with race day. Yeah, and so you couldn't go uh, any further, but then you had to run a marathon to finish yeah, it off. Yeah, you run a marathon, right. <laughs> But it's that constant, uh, it's that constant up and down. But I love seeing, you know, your body respond to. At first, a five mile run felt a little long, and then a ten mile run, and then a fifteen. And, uh, the body's ability to adapt is really, um, really incredible. And you know, that's what we try and talk to patients about too, on a on a smaller scale. Maybe you know, just start with some water walking and water aerobics and progress, because the body really is uh, um, amazing. So how many uh, Ironmans, uh, either half or full distance Ironmans, have you done so far? Uh, I've done a couple of halves. Um, I don't know, three or four maybe, and then I've done 16 full Ironman. I qualified once for, for the big Hawaii one in, in Kona, so that was, uh, that was great. And I still, uh, I'm semi-retired maybe at the moment, I'm trying to decide <laughs> on that. Uh, so it's been, yeah, 16 Ironmans in about 10 years, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. I've been fortunate enough to go all over the world and race and spend time with friends and see new places and meet new people. And one of the, one of the things I love is you'll see patients, uh, sorry, not, not patients, uh, participants with artificial limb or uh, they're blind athletes out there. 
people who have things that you think, wow, I, I thought this was difficult for me. I can't imagine doing this um, with with some of those limitations that they overcome. And yeah. people who are 70, 80 years old sometimes, it's incredible. Yeah, and I think for a lot of those people, it's a, it's really a testament to their, their mental strength, being able to endure uh, and push through um, and overcome, you know, what their limitations. Um, but what, what would you say your, I mean, maybe it's Kona and maybe this is a really easy question for you, but what, what was your favorite Ironman of, out of those 16? Um, well, I mean, you know, Kona comes with all the, all the hoopla. There's tons of people and helicopters and drones and just a huge spectacle, right? And one of the things that makes, uh, Ironman unique is that you're racing with, the world's greatest athletes. It's like playing with, you know, LeBron James or Tom Brady, uh, you know, the Olympic gold medalist who won Kona that year passed me on, um, on his second loop of, uh, part of the course. And so it's, it's a fun experience there. But, uh, my favorite race, I'd say maybe two of them, Ironman Lake Placid in New York is really cool. You're at this old Olympic venue, uh, kind of tucked into the woods, and that was really a fun one. Uh, and then I did Ironman France, which is in Nice. And uh, so you swim in the Mediterranean, and it's, it's beautiful. Uh, they do give you the swim directions in French, and it's a confusing course. So that was a little less than ideal. But, um, you know, I just followed my, my Frenchman there, and, and we got the job done. And then you bike on part of the Tour de France course, so you bike up into the mountains and through the villages on a little cobblestone even, um, and then you run again along the Mediterranean, and then they have fireworks after. And, uh, but people may not know one of the uh, traditions of Ironman is coming back to the finish line around midnight. So um, you you go back and you cheer on people who are who are finishing just before the cutoff because there is a time cutoff of 17 hours for, for most of those races. So it's really neat to come back and see, see people uh, barely cross the line in time. So it's a big party. Yeah, I, do those, uh, the people at the end, do they get, you know, they get more cheers than the people up in the, in the, in the front or in the middle? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I used to think it was easier sometimes for them because I'd see, see them like walking in and taking their time and, um, you know, not all of my 16 races went as fast as I wanted. And so I remember my first bad one slower than one. I'm like, this is way worse, you know, finishing in 13 or 14 hours instead of 10 hours is, is a lot different. So to be out there for almost 17 hours, uh, pushing, pushing through, I, I, uh, I give them even more credit. So, you know, uh, triathlon and you know Ironman is an outdoor sport. Uh, so uh, out of sixteen, I'm I'm sure you've had at least one that, that had some pretty bad weather. Uh, what, what was kind of the worst weather or worst uh, maybe maybe most scary kind of situation you've run into in Ironman and either from a something on the course or, or something with the weather? Well, Mike, you bring up touchy subjects here. Um, I haven't had great weather luck. I've had couple of very hot races, like near 100 degrees, people being carted off all the time. And, um, but my, my two worst ones, I'll say, was one that I was supposed to do four or five months ago where a historic storm in California, of all places, where it hadn't rained in 212 days in Sacramento, canceled our race. 
that was a little disappointing after all that training to, to get canceled, but um, I did one f maybe four years ago in Louisville where it was very, very cold unexpectedly and several hundred people were pulled from the race for hypothermia. So I spent several hours in a gym, a high school gym, which was one of the aid stations under a hand dryer, continuously hitting the hand dryer button to, to try and warm up. And I made myself um, more clothes out of that silver mylar stuff. And um, so I finished that race about 10 minutes before the, the um, finish line shut down. So I got to experience the last minute finish. Wow. Wow. That's, that's wild. So, uh, you know, what, what was the, uh, what was the, you know, I, earlier before we started the, the podcast, you mentioned, um, being involved, I think with, uh, you know, a, a team USA or something with triathlon, uh, how, what was that experience like? And, uh, and, and I've obviously done a really underwhelming job of teeing that up. So tell me what, what that was actually all, all about. Well, so we'll clarify this. So, um, not Team USA as in the Olympics Team USA, but each country um, sends representatives for triathlon at various distances to compete at a, uh, at a race. And so I qualified in the long distance race for, for Team USA um, and ultimately, unfortunately, did not compete because I was starting fellowship and it would have uh, overlapped. So I maybe regret that decision a little bit, but, um, but yeah, there's a, a certain number of spots that you can qualify for at races here. And, uh, but it's pretty cool. You get a Jersey with the, you know, American flag on it and your name, etc. Um, so you get to feel like a pretend Olympian for, uh, for a little bit. That's awesome. Uh, and have you done any, any ultra distance events other than Ironman? Have you done any of the long runs or, or any of that? No, I um I need the the fanfare associated with Ironman to get me through. Uh, so those you know those long distance ultra marathons, those runs through the deserts and the forests and whatnot. There's like you know ten people out there, whereas you go to Ironman race and there's thousands of people. And um, it's just like when you're running next to somebody on the treadmill at the gym. You know, maybe you look over and see how fast they're going, and you dial it up just a little bit. Uh, I think I need that pressure of <laughs> people watching me to be like, Oh, nope. Can't slow down here. Gotta, gotta keep running. So I'm not as dedicated as they are to be able to, uh, to accomplish that stuff. That's totally understandable. I guess last question on this, uh, what, what is your favorite segment of the race? Is it the, is it the bike or the run or uh, maybe the swim? Uh, I've never heard anybody say the swim is their favorite part of the triathlon, but only the swimmers <laughs> say that and we, we try not to talk to them because they have an unfair advantage. Um, my favorite segment is definitely the run with a caveat of you gotta, you gotta be able to get off that bike somewhat fresh or else the run is, uh, is really brutal. So, uh, coming off the bike fresh and making sure you've gotten enough calories and liquids and so many, so many little things, um, in that race to make sure that when you start running, you can actually run, uh, because once you start walking, that's when the pain really starts. <laughs> well, yeah. So I guess that's bringing it right back around to, to how we started this. And uh, as a 
as a talk about chronic pain. Uh, and, uh, and so I really appreciate the time today. Uh, it's been, been awesome. Uh, you know, as far as any final words on, on targeted drug delivery or, or, or triathlon before I, before we close out. Boy, no, not too much. I, um, you know, your patients are in great hands with you. And I think, uh, we're, we're fortunate to be able to, to try and talk about targeted drug delivery both here. And as we do across the country, trying to spread the word about a really underappreciated therapy that you and I and many other providers uh, throughout the world have seen is really life-changing for patients, something that is relatively simple to do um, and easy to access. We want more people to be able to, to experience that therapy. So I'm hopeful that uh, that word continues to spread uh, for what's available for these patients for, for really their pain and, and their mobility. Yeah, I can only I can only echo that. You know, this is a underutilized therapy, uh, but it's a really great therapy, and and it, it deserves to grow. And 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 uh, you know, I, I feel like in, in my practice that uh, our, my pump patients are, are some of my happiest patients, and and they also are the ones that tend to to tell the uh, kind of the other patients, and they're very good at just you know kind of referring patients for pump therapy themselves because they are happy, and I think that's just a, a testament to the therapy. Uh, but well. Uh, I'm going to close it out with a uh, thank you very much uh, for joining me today. Uh, can't wait to someday I got to get over to St. Louis and, and, uh, and come hang out with you on, on the bike or on the, on the running trail a little bit. Uh, and uh, I'll see you soon, bud. Sounds good, Mike. All right. Have a good day. You too. Thanks for listening to Premier Pain Talk, where we understand your pain and share solutions that can improve your quality of life. This episode is brought to you by Premier Pain Treatment Institute, which has convenient Cincinnati area locations in Loveland, Mount Orb, and Hillsboro. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you get updates on all new episodes. Feedback is sincerely appreciated. 